Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Welcome back. This is episode three of Thinking Fast and Slow. We're having a seance. We're walking through all these crazy ass ideas. And right now we're in the midst. We're deep in exploring the two systems of our mind. System one, which is fast. System two, which is slow. How they interplay when they're good, when shit gets done, fucked up, and what to do about it. Preamble is done. We're jumping into the marvels of priming. If you've recently seen or heard the word eat, you are temporarily more likely to complete the word fragment S-O blank P as soup rather than soap. The opposite would happen if you just seen the word wash. And so that's insane. And you know, like I don't even necessarily believe it 100%, but even if kernels of this are true, basically what he's saying is that Statistically significantly across humans, if you show someone the word wash and then tell them to finish S-O blank P, they pick soap. If you show them the word eat, they pick soup. My, how fragile the human psyche is. Priming effects take many forms. If the idea of eat is currently on your mind, whether or not you're conscious of it, you will be quicker than usual to recognize the word soup. And of course, you are not only primed for the idea of soup, but for a multitude of other food-related ideas. And I'd even guess for a small subset of the population, you are primed for the phrase man flesh. Furthermore, the primed ideas have some ability to prime other ideas, although more weakly, like ripples in a pond. Activation spreads through a small part of the vast network of associated ideas. God damn it, Daniel. Dude, I need to take a shower. That shit's fucking blowing my mind. Uh, Another major advance in our understanding of memory was the discovery that priming is not restricted to concepts and words. You cannot know this from conscious experience, of course, but you must accept the alien idea that your actions and emotions can be primed by events of which you are not even aware. So that's crazy, but he, he you know, statistically significantly, uh, you prime people with Florida related words, and then you time them doing shit, and they go slower, suggesting that Florida makes you think of old people, makes you think of relaxing, unless you happen to dislike the elderly, in which case you will probably move slightly faster than usual. Now, dude, I'm not sure I fully fucking buy that, but I think the idea is good. Okay, like, I don't know if I buy that specific example of priming Florida old people, like, maybe. Or it could just be noise, bitch. But I do think that priming is probably true, which is why you'd I, I struggle to diet when my job is super stressful because when I'm hungry, I find myself back to that mind state of cutting weight for wrestling season where 
I cultivated a- aggression at the expense of personal relationships because at a certain point in wrestling season, dude, aggression is all that can sustain you. But now I find myself dieting and like there's a stupid process at work and dude, I am primed to speak truth to power with aggression and it feels like the truth, but we actually have the truth as a separate thing than the fact that I'm primed for berserker mode and anything getting in the way of scalp hunting must be morally wrong. Uh, Another example, my good fucking friend, when he knew I had to go into a huge negotiation, he texted me the following right before. Skegold, Skalmold, Skildir, Roklofnir. Which in Viking means axe time, sword time, shields will be splintered. And as I was taking the elevator down to grab breakfast with the big, 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 big boss man, I kid you not, I was repeating axe time, sword time, shields will be splintered. I was repeating it to myself. I primed myself for that negotiation. Studies of priming effects have yielded discoveries that threaten our self-image as conscious and autonomous authors of our judgment. And I'm including this not because I really think we can draw sweeping conclusions, but because I think it's interesting to see how our system one, it isn't a, it, there's a lot more influence in our, our daily life than we care to admit. Another thing that influences us is cognitive ease. Whenever you're conscious, and perhaps even when you are not, multiple computations are going on in your brain which maintain and update current answers to some key questions. Is there anything new? Is there a threat? Are things going well? Should my attention be redirected? The assessment is carried out automatically by System 1, and one of their functions is to determine whether extra effort is required by System 2. So he's saying is that just by having a brain, our System 1 is constantly just checking a baseline. Like, okay, is everything normal? Is everything good? You know, it's like if you're, I remember, I didn't go in the office too much, um, you know, when COVID first kicked off in 2020, but dude, driving at 8 a.m. into the office was like, it was like driving on New Year's Day at 8 a.m. There was no cars. And, you know, your, your system one's always kind of like, huh, what's going on? What's going on? And then, you know, it's like, this is not normal. And it turns out that it's not normal in that example because of, mass fucking pandemic but system one is constantly assessing the world do i need to give more attention do i need to think about it because like let's say that i'm driving into work like that and there's no pandemic i'm like is this a holiday like am i going in the office when when like am i wrong did the time change am i late what's going on did i black out what like i need to address this so so constantly measuring a bunch of shit and one thing that's that's always being measured is cognitive ease. So like, how easy is it for me to interact with this current environment? And it, it ranges from easy to strained. So easy is a sign that things are going well. You know, so there's no threats, no major news. You know, it's like I'm driving to work, normal time, everything's good, no construction, just all of a sudden I just am at work. Strained indicates that a problem exists or at least like something that system two needs to look at so this is where like 
There's a bunch of construction, some of the other examples I gave, but uh, the surprise is that a single dial of cognitive ease is connected to a large network of diverse inputs and outputs. So, so what that's saying is that your system one is usually kind of like low key monitoring everything. When shit's calm, normal, no change, everything feels easy and system two doesn't need to step in. You know, you're not watching where you're going, you're not paying attention, you're not like assuming that, oh man, someone's about to break into my house, it's just business as usual. But when the world deviates from that business as usual, we experience cognitive strain, the feeling of effort, and our system two steps in. And now this, in this seance, you know, we're seeing that system one feels easy, feels familiar, feels true, feels good, feels effortless. So when things are, when, when the cognitive ease is high and when everything's easy, everything just feels right. And so like part of how insidious all this bias and high end, you know, heuristics and shit is, is that it just feels easy and true. And most of the time, System one is easy and true. You know, think of changing lanes while driving. You know, you've done that a thousand times. It's no problem. It's easy. But if every now and then when you change lanes with while driving, you give a million kids cancer, you'd probably want to want to slow down and focus on that a little bit more. And that analogy is saying that like a lot of times it's totally fine. You know, you go with that system one gut reaction. It's all good. But sometimes that gut reaction's wrong. And wouldn't you want to know about it before you make a dumb fucking decision? The various causes of ease or strain have interchangeable effects. When you are in a state of cognitive ease, you're probably in a good mood. You like what you see, you believe what you hear, you trust your intuitions, you feel like the current situation is comfortably familiar. You're also likely to be pretty casual and superficial in your thinking. Um, so like when we're experiencing this cognitive ease, we're just chilling, dog. We're cruising. Now, compare that to when you feel strained. You're more likely to be vigilant, suspicious, invest more effort in what you're doing, feel less comfortable, and make fewer errors. But you're also less intuitive and less creative than usual. So my wife does this really bad. She just like trusts people. And uh, right out of college, lived in the ghetto, and I, I, dry, I get home from work. And she's out there and it's dark and, and I get home and she's talking to this shifty looking guy and he's saying, hey, can you help me? I, I lost my phone. My son threw it out the window of my car and she's like heads down looking for it. And she's like, oh, hey, can you help this guy find his phone? And immediately my spider senses start firing. I reach in my pocket. This was actually like the moment that convinced me I need, I need to carry a gun. Like I need to go buy a gun and figure this out. Um, I had a little pocket knife and dude, and my plan was the world's shittiest self-defense plan that like if shit pops off, I'm just going to start having to prison shank the shit out of this dude if he gets squirrely. But that's the difference. You know, I, I was not feeling any cognitive ease. I was like ready to fight. I was not trusting this guy at all, but my wife's brain was like, Oh, Hey, I'm just going to help. This guy's great. I'm just going to help. And the lesson is that predictable illusions, aka areas when shit gets fucked up, occur if a judgment is based on an impression of cognitive ease or strain. Anything that makes it easier for the associative machine to run smoothly will also bias beliefs. 
A reliable way to make people believe in falsehoods is frequent repetition because familiarity is not easily distinguished from truth. And so what he's what he's saying there is that like sometimes we will just make we will we will fall into the grips of illusions. We will make bad decisions just because something's easy. Okay? And so familiarity even can can cause something to be easy. And so uh, think about the hammer. Okay, Daryl Isaacs. He's an attorney in Indiana, Illinois, Ohio, Michigan. He puts a bunch of billboards up. And he's like, injured in an accident? Call the hammer. And probably the, the first 50 times I saw it, I didn't even notice. And then I started to notice. And then I really started to notice. And now I've talked about the hammer like five times on this podcast. And now, honestly, if I got into a horrible accident and I felt like I have to sue Uh, a trucking company, I'm pretty sure I would call the hammer. Not because it's right, not because it's better, but because, dude, cognitive ease, familiarity, I've I've thought about him 700 times. Like I've, so clearly he must be good. Suppose you write a message that you want recipients to believe. And this is where really crazy, interesting concept, but like think about like a sales email. Like you're trying to get someone to take a meeting with you. You know, of course, your message will be true, but that's not necessarily enough for people to believe it's true. It is entirely legitimate for you to enlist cognitive ease to work in your favor. So what he's basically saying is that like, think about sending an email or the discipline of copywriting. The discipline of copywriting is like how to write in a way that gets people to buy stuff. And, and I, I'm realizing this, it's, it's basically optimizing for cognitive ease. And so the way that you do good copywriting is you don't just do like a block of text. You do something that breaks up the, the text, you do multiple lines, you bold, you underline, you, you use bullet points, and um, you might, maybe even you include a video. And uh, long ago, I was, a, I was an SDR, sales development rep. My job was to book meetings. And I ran this campaign where I would video myself and I would write on a whiteboard, hi, Jane, click play. And I directly closed a deal because uh, she responded, okay, you've got my attention. Jump on a call, close them. But that's, that's not because I was any better. It's because I made it easy. You know, she's going through her email. She sees a video. It says Jane. She's like, my name's Jane. And she's like, wait, did he write this for me? You got my attention. Boom, closed it. Remember, mental effort is aversive. If possible, the recipients of your message want to stay away from anything that reminds them of effort. So they just sucked in and all of a sudden they're like, oh, hey, my name's Jane. Oh, let me watch this. Oh, that kid's pretty cool. Oh, I'm actually looking for dating analytics right now. Let me call him. And so this specter is still shimmering away in this seance. Cognitive ease was one part of it. Now we're going to talk about norms, surprises, and causes. The central characteristics and functions of System 1 and System 2 have now been introduced with a more detailed treatment of System 1. Freely mixing metaphors, we have in our head a remarkably powerful computer. Not fast by conventional hardware standards, but able to represent the structure of our world by various types of associative links in a vast network of various ideas. The spreading of activation in the associative machine is automatic, but we, System 2, have some ability to control the search of memory and also to program it 
so that the detection of an event in the environment can attract attention. So goddamn it. So he's basically saying though that like we've got we we have this computer in our brains. We're constantly monitoring the world in system one. But we have some ability to to prime or to coach or to train our system one to to focus on specific things. So like if we're if we're deer hunting, okay, we can we can train our system one to be constantly scanning. Like if you do a weekend of deer hunting and then you're driving to work you're going to have to focus to not be scanning the woods for deer. And you're going to be seeing deer. You're going to be looking and be like, I bet a deer's right there. Boom, you see it. And so you can prime your system one with your conscious mind to look for specific things. We next go into more detail of the wonders and limitations of what system one can do. The main function of system one is to maintain and update a model of your personal world which represents what is normal in it. Now, this is so crazy. The model is constructed by associations that link ideas to circumstances, events, actions, and outcomes that co-occur with some regularity. And so, like what he's saying is that, so we see another driver turn their head in the way that 8,000 other drivers have done in a way that suggests that they are changing lanes. And even though they don't have their turn signal on, our system one's like, Got it. High probability of changing lanes. As these links are formed and strengthened, the pattern of associated ideas comes to represent the structure of events in your life, and it determines your interpretation of the present as well as your expectations of the future. That's a bunch of damn words, but I believe we can do this. And so it's saying, as you get exposed to more and more shit, you build these chunks, you build these patterns, these these representations of how things should be to the point that they're pretty sophisticated. Think of surprises. Surprise itself is the most sensitive indication of how we understand our world and what we expect from it. There are two main types of surprises. Some expectations are active and conscious. You know, so you know you're waiting for your friend to pull up to your house and a car pulls up. Great, you will be surprised if an actively expected event does not occur. So you're expecting your friend to pull up with one car and another car pulls up and another car pulls up and then you hear someone say, okay, let's fucking get him. That's surprising. But there's a much larger category of events that you expect passively, but you don't wait for them and you aren't surprised when they happen. These events are normal in a situation, though not sufficiently probable to be actively expected. So what he's basically saying is that like your system one's always looking around and one of the dials that it's trying to find is like, is anything surprising? Is anything surprising? And there's some things that don't happen that often, but like, you know, like a deer. So you're driving by the woods and and you look and you see a deer. Okay. Like you weren't expecting that deer, but it's not, it's not insanely surprising that after all the pattern recognition that you've done, that you see a deer where you thought there might be a deer. So he shares a story. He was at some obscure resort and um, he met an acquaintance and he's like, oh, hey, man, how the fuck are you here? He's like, how the fuck are you here? He's like, oh, I don't know, man. I Groupon. He's like, oh, me too. And so you're like, oh, that's interesting. And then a few weeks later, Daniel went to a show and uh, he was sitting down with his wife. There's a seat next to him and a latecomer sat next to Daniel. When the intermission came up, he looked over and it was the same fucking guy. 
uh, his wife and him commented later that we were simultaneously conscious of two facts. First, it was more remarkable and a bigger coincidence that this dude would show up two places rather than one. But second, they were distinctly less surprised to meet this guy the second time. Evidently, the first meeting had somehow changed the idea of this guy in their minds. He was now the colleague who shows up when I travel abroad. So I feel this like every time I go to a fucking airport, I see people I know. So now I, in my mind, I just go to an airport and I just associate. I'm like, I'm going to see people I know. And like the last time I flew, I saw my good buddy TJ Chamberlain. I wrestled with him. I looked at him and I'm like, TJ, he's like, hello. And I came up, I came up and I, I hugged him and his wife's like, who's this? And I'm like, don't worry about it. Then I walked away. But this is why I think training is so important because the second time you see something, you're like 200% better equipped to handle it than the first time. So as we continue this, uh, quick question. Um, how many animals of each kind did Moses take into the ark? Okay, let's think about that. Uh, was it, okay, two of each species. Um, I wonder how they all avoided descending into incest, which after owning a herd of goats, I have learned is aptly not named Wincest. Uh, how many? None, you idiot. Moses didn't take anything into the ark. Noah did. The ideas of animals going into the ark sets up a biblical context, and Moses is not abnormal in that context, so the mention of his name is not surprising. So that this is fucking crazy. As with the trials that produce cognitive ease, you unconsciously detect associative coherence between Moses and the ark, and you quickly accept the question. So you're listening to this, and you hear... Moses, Ark, Moses, Bible, Ark, Bible, coherent, yep, okay, animals, what to do. But now replace the, the replace Moses with Kanye West, and it's obviously false. Let me just say it again. How many animals of each kind did Kanye West take into the Ark? You're like, um, shut up. When something does not fit in the current context, the system detects an abnormality. So I bet this is why... You know, if we go back to that uh, Marine Corps Hunter program, someone in just deep possession of that Marine Corps Hunter program knowledge that, you know, combat profiling could be a great spy. You know, you just weave yourself into the baseline of the situation. Everyone is operating on system one and, and you don't create enough of a memory that e that anybody even has a tiny kernel of, of, of system two memory of you being there. And you kill the Prime Minister of Libya and you, you blend into the crowd seamlessly. Um, what? But this coherence, you know, this wanting to, to, to just see a story that makes sense and you want this easy thought, it even uh, extends to causes and intentions. So let's think about this. Fred's parents arrived late. The caterers were expected soon. Fred was angry. So we know why Fred was angry. And... It's because his parents were late, and then in our mind, we're like weaving this story that, man, dude, okay, they're late, but they need to be here because the fucking caterers are here. What are you doing? Mom and dad, come on. But we don't know that. We just made that causal, causal connection in the story. But finding such connections is part of understanding a story, and it is an automatic operation of system one. System two, your conscious self, was offered the causal interpretation and accepted it. So like, those could just be disconnected facts. 
Fred's parents arrived late. The caterers were expect, expected soon. Fred was angry. Fred could be angry because he loves the St. Louis Cardinals, you know, but we just look at that and our system too is just like, yeah, makes sense. Um, Daniel cites a story in Rat to Lab's book, The Black Swan, illustrating the automatic search for causality. And this is, this. once I th- learned this, dude, I was ruined as a financial advisor because we I'd see it everywhere. And he tells a story of when Saddam Hussein was captured in his little spider hole. Uh, there was an article 30 minutes after bond prices were up. And the article's like, bond prices up on Saddam Hussein's capture. Well, the crazy thing is 30 minutes later, bond prices were down. And there's an article that goes, everybody's scared and moving to away from bonds because of Saddam Hussein's capture. The thing is, neither of those is true. Capturing Saddam was a big event that day, and because of the way the automatic search for causes shape our thinking, that event was going to be used to explain whatever happened in the market that day. You know, you somebody, you know, um, kills a bunch of pygmies in Nigeria. You know, you could do that same thing, like genocide happens, global markets in flux, but those are unrelated. But people are prone to apply causal thinking inappropriately to situations that require statistical reasoning. But this is why even just understanding System 1 and System 2 is so important because System 1 does not have the capability to think like that. Now, I will say, I would guess, if you're a statistics professor, you probably can train your System 1 to have correct intuitions there. Um, But the average person... Dude, yeah, caterer's late. That dude's mad. He's mad at his mom because his mom doesn't respect his wedding. It continues. We're still in this specific seance. This, the shimmering ghost of Christmas passes in front of us. And now we're going to move into how our brains, in many ways, are machines for jumping to conclusions. Some comedian has a line that goes... Her favorite position is beside herself, and her favorite sport is jumping to conclusions. The line came up, Daniel remembers, in the initial conversation with Amos about the rationality of statistical intuitions, and now Daniel believes it offers an apt description of how System 1 functions. Jumping to conclusions is efficient if the conclusions are likely to be correct, and the cost of an occasional mistake acceptable and if the jump saves much time and effort. So he's saying a good way to summarize what our system one is doing is it's jumping to conclusions. And now a lot of times, hey man, you see someone about to change lanes, you jump to the conclusion, change the lanes, you back up, they don't change lanes, you're good. Jumping to conclusions is good a lot of times, but it's risky when the situation's unfamiliar, the stakes are high, or there's no time to collect more information. Um, you know, these are situations where intuitive errors are probable, which may be prevented by deliberate intervention of system two. So an example, Anne approached the bank and handed him a magazine. What did you picture? Did you, did you picture Anne approaching a bank for money or, or a river bank? What type of magazine was she handing him? A gun magazine or better home and garden? No joke, dude, in my mind, I pictured Anne walking into a bank and handing them a 9mm magazine that could fit into a Smith & Wesson M&P 9. 
He says unless you've been canoeing recently, you probably spend more time going to banks than floating on rivers, so you resolve the ambiguity accordingly. The rules of betting are intelligent. Recent events in the current context have the most weight in determining the interpretation. When no recent events come to mind, more distant memories govern. The most important aspect of both items is that a definite choice was made, but you did not know it. So that's so fucking crazy because they gave, you know, Anne approaches the bank and hands him a magazine. We actually don't have enough information. We made a choice. You know, a computer would come back and be like, nah, do not have enough information. What type of bank? What type of magazine? In our minds, though, we don't have any problem. It's fucking easy. It's coherent. The moral is significant. When system two is otherwise engaged, we will believe almost anything system one puts in front of us. System two is in charge of doubting and unbelieving, but sometimes it's busy. You know, let's say you meet a woman at a party. She's hot. She's personable. She's easy to talk to. You like her. Her name's Joan. Now, let's say a week later, Joan comes up in a conversation and people are wondering, do you think Joan is generous? Well, you're going to have that coherence you're going to have that halo effect that he, he uh, alluded to before. And you're going to think, of course, Joan is generous. I like Joan. I like people who are generous. How can someone so hot not be generous? And you're going to make a judgment that Joan is generous without actually having the knowledge if that's true or not. You don't know. You talk to Joan for a little bit. You know, maybe she's just an OnlyFans thought and she's not generous at all. This is the Steve Jobs or, or Bill Clinton reality distortion field that they talk about. Um, Bill's is kind of like a weird flavor of reality distortion field because you know people around him just start identifying as vacuums and just want to suck. But a reality distortion field nonetheless. Hey, uh, Monica, does this, does this taste weird to you? Wait, Bill, that's your penis. Wait, Bill, that's your penis. Come here and give that sweet, sweet nectar to Monica. Uh, okay, never mind. Even the sequence of how we observe characteristics of a person is important. And it is a lot of times chance. So we're still talking about how like our brains jump to conclusions. And so we're like a computer would, would hold off making a judgment. Like, hey, I don't have all the data yet. Our brains, we don't do that. You know, sometimes sequence matters. Sometimes, you know, that's that saying you only have one chance to make a good impression. That matters. I still remember I was walking into the locker room with my good friend. Um, you know, we were about to go swimming and I remember turning to him and in the in the in the most formal national spelling bee voice I could do, I turned to him and I say, analingus, the root word anus, ass, lingus to lick. The art of licking asses. We round the corner and I am face to face with a professor. There is zero doubt that he heard me, considering I, I confidently dissected that word like I was legit about to win the National Spelling Bee. If that was his first impression of me, and then like two weeks later, he finds out that I was in his next semester's class, I'm going to have a lot to undo. Since his system won, and all, uh, and, uh, and I'll even say his system too is like, God damn it, I got the analingus kid. The combination of a coherence seeking system one with a lazy system two implies that system two will endorse many intuitive beliefs 
which closely reflect the impressions generated of system one. So our system two is lazy. You know, like it's easier to be like, oh, God damn it, I got the analingus kid. Then to be like, well, you know, that's one tiny little piece of data. Maybe he was making a joke. I like funny movies. Maybe that was a, his attempt at a funny joke. It was so stupid and not funny. But like, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold judgment until I see how he, how he writes. Uh-uh. System two is lazy. And system one is just like, analingus. I hate him. So our system one is actually many times wrong. But that wrongness happens so easily that it never even makes a blip on the radar. And our systems two, our system twos never take the time to think that maybe we just caught that kid in a, in a very weird version of an R-rated spelling bee and there's still hope for him yet. As this shit is going, let's think about how judgments happen. Because ultimately, if you think about becoming a Kusemono, becoming rich, jacked, and gods among men, that's all going to come down to our judgment, how how well we can make decisions in this multivariate, complicated, fucking Monte Carlo simulation of life. So if we think about our system too, there's no limit to the number of questions we can answer, whether they're questions someone else asks or questions we ask ourselves. So what he's saying is that, like, given enough time, I mean, all of us could even, we could even count to a thousand if we believed hard enough. But system one operates differently. It continuously monitors what's going on outside and inside the mind and continuously generates assessments of various aspects of the situation without specific intention and with little or no effort. These basic assessments play an important role in intuitive judgment because they're easily substituted for more difficult questions. You know, we're trying to figure out how are things going? Is there a threat? Should I approach or avoid? These questions are perhaps less urgent for a human in a city environment than for a gazelle, but we have inherited the same neural mechanisms. For a specific example of a basic assessment, consider the ability to discriminate friend from foe at a glance. So we can glance at a person, we can thin slice in a, in a span of milliseconds. We can have a decent idea of if that person means us harm or not. Because we're a lot of times answering an easier question. Uh, a remarkable aspect of your mental life is that you are rarely stumped. True, sometimes we are faced with a question like, what is 17 times 24? Or, you know, uh, we, we encounter people who use words like sensible gun control. Uh, but these dumbfounded moments are rare. The normal state of your mind is that you have intuitive feelings and opinions about almost everything that comes your way. You like or dislike people long before you know much about them. You trust or distrust strangers without really knowing why. You get a gut feel about a business and you feel like it has to mean something. Whether you state them or not, you often have answers to questions that you do not completely understand relying on evidence that you can neither explain nor defend. So what he's saying is that like, dude, we go through this world. We're not, we're not fucking like, oh yeah, I'm stumped all the time. No, it's the opposite. Like, I have opinions on everything. Like, okay, I'm right now I'm looking at um, hand sanitizer on my desk. It's the Amazon Basics brand. And my opinion is like, you know what? That's pretty cool. You know, I bet Amazon, it's like the generic. Really good idea, Amazon. But I don't know. That, it could be unethical. They could be, they could be doing a Rockefellian price gouging system where they are trying to put, you know, where they're just cloning 
other brands and it's unethical and horrible but i don't know i have an opinion i'm just like look at it. I'm like yeah it's, it's great gut feel awesome cheaper hand sanitizer for me because a lot of times we're substituting questions daniel says i propose a simple account of how we generate intuitive opinions on complex matters if a satisfactory answer to a hard question is not quickly found system one will find a related question that is easier to answer and answer that one daniel calls this operation substitution so there's an actual business model in pharmaceutical sales called be a hot fucking female why well it's partly because you know doctors kind of want to feel like they're all gods and they're emperors with a thousand concubines around them but also if you don't know much about someone but you know that they look really well put together physically all your underlying system one machinery substitutes the question is this product good substitutes that question for damn this bitch fine as hell because when we broadly ask people to judge probability a lot of times they judge something else and believe they've judged probability you know when i bought those solar stocks i thought i was judging probability but i was honestly just answering the question is the sun big it is i should buy this stock and a point he makes is these substitutions are sometimes decently accurate but we need to realize that we've done them you know if you're a twin and you switch out in the middle of a date with a girl and your brother kisses them and then for your final reveal you show up and you both threesome that girl it's cool as long as she's aware of it a few questions to illustrate question one how much would you contribute to save an endangered species well the answer that a lot of times we're going to reply with is how much emotion do i feel when i think of that dying species question two how happy are you with your life these days well the answer we're likely to give what is my mood right now you know you ask me how happy i am and if i'm an hour late for lunch i'm going to tell you you know life is stressful and hard you ask me how happy i am after you know white castle and a couple whiskeys fucking great this woman is running for the primary how far will she go in politics the answer is does this woman look like a political winner uh so for me dude up until recently i was too cheap to have spotify and so i listened to youtube mixes in the background and you know what is fucking horrible and illustrates this exact fact those unskippable two-minute ads about donating to kids with cancer our daughter jamesha she's always an unstoppable spirit and then the camera pans over to this strong bald girl with fabulous earrings and she's looking you in the soul and she says i just know i have to keep fighting you know when you watch this i might be dead but if you donate today you can help other kids like me survive and then that ad like just emotionally just devolves into death metal gutturals save the children save the children and i am sure that the roi on those ads is insane because it shortcuts any sort of reason and logical statistical based thoughts and substitutes if you don't donate you're basically happy jamesha's suffering you are basically killing her but the the actual statistical thought is like hey is this 
is this hospital good? Is like if I donate, how much of this money actually goes to Jamesha versus like, does the CEO make five million dollars? Is you know, is this a scam? But but you shortcut that, you don't answer the actual real question that you need to answer, which is like a rational appraisal of is it a good thing to donate to this specific institution? You flip over and you just answer, Hey, do you want to burn Jamesha alive? And if you don't, give us money. And the whole point of this series is, of course, System 2 has the opportunity to reject this intuitive answer or to modify it by incorporating other information. However, a lazy, a lazy System 2 often follows the path of least effort. And if we aren't careful, we might not even realize the target question was difficult because an intuitive answer readily came to mind. So, we, you know, we, we see... That, that ad from that guy in Africa, you know, got the black kids around him and, and they're swollen and they're sick and he's looking at the camera and he's like, you know, this is my friend Tuk Tuk. And you know, Tuk Tuk, he's going to die in a week. But I'm looking to people like you to see if you could donate and help Tuk Tuk because I want him to live for a hundred years. And you look and you, instead of being like, should I donate to this? You're like, fuck. And you get your credit card out and you fucking donate. And he brings up that, dude, this gets even worse when emotions are involved. Your system one feels super emotional that government regulation is a scourge against the land, let's say. So when someone says, hey, we're going we're gonna to regulate the oil companies to make sure they can't raise prices too high to avoid price gouging. Dog, you get triggered. You, you, you respond to that person. You say, okay, let's fucking walk through that. If the market price based on supply and demand is $4 per gallon and you force oil companies to sell it at 3 you're effectively making them make way less money per gallon, up to and including possibly even making no money, which then makes them get out of the business completely. And on the on the consumer side, let's pretend you buy something and it's 40% off. What do you do? You buy more of it. So that's a great idea if you want massive fucking shortages. And then the seven-year-old who was just repeating back what they learned at school starts to cry, but you're strangely okay with it because you're not going to hang out with no commie bitch even if he is seven. We see here a new side of the personality of System 2. System 2 is more of an apologist for the emotions of System 1 rather than a critic. So you, know, you feel these emotions for System 1. But the, the natural state of System 2 is not to really be like, hey, should I be feeling like that? You're more like, hey, I'm glad that that seven-year-old's crying because just in case that guy might have been a commie bitch, I don't want to encourage him at all. And if you're not careful, you could take those emotions bleeding over from System 1 and your entire System 2 is now illogical, crazy, and wrong. Am I priests? We are exiting the first part of this seance. The other two parts will go quick. This was the meat. This was the bones. Because prior to learning what to do about it, we had to learn about what the fuck is going on with these two wild banshees inside ourselves. But now, we move into examples of specific issues, heuristics, and biases. This portion of the seance winds down. Our candles have all burned halfway, we're all covered in an opium-laced sheen of sweat, and we feel like one super-consciousness. We think, maybe we want a break, but then Mildred, that whore, starts moving the Ouija board and we're sucked back into the void. Time to summon another demon. And this demon 
is a shapeshifter. Where the previous one illustrated System 1 and System 2, the split personality of our minds, this one is going to dive into multiple specific examples of when, just by being fucking alive, our brains done fuck up. But if you want that, if you want to take this to the end, if you want to walk with me to get that promised land hairy chest that I did say that you would, you would achieve, you're going to have to tune in next time to the next episode of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that, my pretties, is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Check us out at CuriouslyDisagreeable.com, the Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end.